and welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters that are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Aaron Corte and I'm the news editor at Resonant Advisor. What does it take to build an empire? In Tiger's case, it's a combination of hard work, a sharp wit and a cunning entrepreneurial streak. In a 20-year career, he's worn many hats, including DJ, promoter, A&R man, record shop owner and nightclub boss. In that time, he stayed true to his core musical beliefs and displayed an ability to move with the times that means he's still top of his game 12 years on from the release of breakthrough single Sunglasses at Night. In this RA exchange, the Turbo Recordings chief spoke about his dandified pop persona, plans for a new album and much more, as we traced a line from the Solstice Rave in Montreal in 1992 through to the current day, touching on Seal, the Swedish House Mafia and Barcelona FC in between. place to start this conversation would be with the Solstice Festival. Uh, it's almost 20 years exactly since you helped put on that rave in Montreal. Can you tell me why it uh, was so special to you? Yeah, well, I mean, first, I mean, 20 years is is an epic amount of time. So anytime, you know, when you're talking about something from that long ago, it's it's hard to it's hard to remember. And what you do remember, the memories themselves, you're not even sure if they're they're real anymore. They're more like, you know, uh, symbolic. But I, I mean, it was at the time in Montreal, it was, uh, Montreal was like a, you know, kind of a New York house style city, big gay scene, a lot of warehouse parties and so like that and, and nightclubs and coming out of that, there was nothing that resembled the new, you know, the techno or the rave community. There was nothing like that. And so that party was, you know, both literally and kind of symbolically the first, big what we would call a rave you know it had all the hallmarks of a rave it was the first things that seem ludicrous now things that seem beyond obvious now like full color flyer or more than one dj or going all night or you know all all the things that just became completely woven into the fabric of what we consider to be a party those that was the first for all those things in montreal and for me also also, when you're super young and you do something like that, that is such a big impact in a city. There's quite a lot of like, you know, there's ego involved. There's like, wow, I'm on top of the world, and you're, you know, all your friends from school see what you're up to. And it also happened to be like a magical party. You know, an ecstasy was kind of first introduced on a mass scale, and it was that moment. I suspect every city has, you know, a few early acid house watershed moments, and that was the one for Montreal. Was this around the time that you were also running your own record shop and nightclub, or did that that come later on? No, that was first. The party was first. The party that was that was very early, and for me, the first step in everything was. I mean, DJing came first, and uh, at that stage, parties were the most immediate way they were necessary. 
because I need nobody was booking me, so I had to throw my own parties. And we were very myself and a small group of friends, you know, we were so we were so obsessed and so inspired and so in love with this like emerging culture that you just you just all you cared about was throwing parties. You only cared about your next party. And so the other things, the other steps in building the empire, uh, they came later and kind of you know, and they all followed a pretty logical stream, you know, so you have the parties first and then you need a place to get your records. So you open a record store and, you know, things like that. Again, I think it was quite a, from what I've read, I've read like some books on Acid House. <laughs> I've read some of those like Acid House history books in England and, and I followed a bit like what happened in San Francisco and, and West Coast America. And in general, it seems to like follow kind of a similar pattern everywhere, you know. And what made you think, right, I'm putting on parties, I've, I've got a nightclub, I'm, you know, I've got a record shop promoting um, DJing, all right, I want to make music now as well. I always wanted to make music. I mean, at the beginning, like most kids, like, you know, I, I wanted to be, you know, maybe in a band. Well, I never really, I never had like the rock dreams. But when I discovered the idea of DJing, that's what I wanted to do. And so the beginning, very young, creatively, that was like enough. You know, that was what I, I was really happy with that. But then quickly after, I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to make music. I wanted to be an artist. That's what, like, I never wanted to be a businessman. I never wanted to be, like, rich and powerful. I never, but I really wanted to be an artist, uh, at least my, you know, six, 17, 16-year-old version of what I thought an artist was. And so at first I was DJing, and then quickly I dreamt of, I didn't necessarily do, but I dreamt of, you know, making music and, and DJs playing my records and, all those things and it, it took me a long time to actually make the step away from just dreaming about it to actually doing it and part of that was just like my own I guess you know fear or laziness or whatever and part of it was also that I was I was having so much success with these other like you said the, like a nightclub or a, a record store or those other things were also taking a lot of my time and my energy so and they were successful so successful things tend to keep you imprisoned just like failures at what stage did you decide to, to leave those ventures behind and, and focus on making music, DJing, and then and starting Turbo? Um, well, I was DJing the whole time. DJing's been a constant for about 20 years now, or, or I don't know how long. That's been going the whole time. Uh, the record store I started in 94, the nightclub in 96, and Turbo in 98. Sona in 96, Turbo in 98. The conscious decision to stop either to sell off those businesses or close them, except for the label. The real conscious decision to like turn that page in my life came, I guess, in 2001. And it, it more or less coincided with Sunglasses at Night with making that track, or well, a little bit before that. It was more, I did this double mix CD called Mixed Emotions. And it was like, yeah, I guess that's 2000. So 2000 was the real, you know, but like most people, it, it took kind of one foot in the one side, one foot in the other. And, and I was, I was lucky. I kind of cheated. I was lucky because I, you know, I did that first track song last night was very successful. So it kind of, it pushed me in the deep end. You know, I didn't have to think about it too much after that. And tell me about the early days of Turbo. What was that like? And, and sort of what successes and failures did you have? Um, well, the early days at Turbo started as all these things followed a, a similar pattern, which is like, I had no training in anything and I had nobody, I think that's a bit of that's kind of part of the electronic and techno culture is most people are kind of self-trained you know it's a very do-it-yourself or it was at least 
and especially back then, you know, I was in Canada, it's pre-internet, you know, there was knowledge and instruction was in very short supply. So everything you would do, you just kind of, well, you just, you would wing it really. So the businesses were like that. And uh, the label was definitely like it. So the label started really as, the reason I started the label was I was booking all these DJs to play at Sona at my nightclub and I was booking people to come in for festivals and I was kind of one of the point men for Montreal. You know, it was a big city with a lot of DJs coming through and I was friends with a lot of them, I was booking a lot of them. And I was like, well, I would like to be doing something more creative with these contacts. I'd like to actually be working either on music with these people or just something more musical, something a little bit, you know, not just like picking up the airport and having dinner with them and paying them. You know, that was a bit. <laughs> yeah. So that was the that was the original Turbo started with that. I mean, that wasn't a very lofty goal. That was just like and it started with compilations. I was pretty inspired by like K7 at the time who was just doing these like high quality compilations, curating mix CDs were a novelty back then or um, they were still new. So that's how Turbo started just with, and again, as a vehicle for myself, like for me and for other local guys. And we had a lot of success very early because we were kind of early in the market, at least for North America. And then, you know, like all businesses, we tried to grow a little fast. We had a few set setbacks trying to, uh, it wouldn't be the first time where we had a tough time kind of breaking into America. And uh, yeah, it started really small. It's always been quite small, the actual operation, and it's always been, record label for me at least has always been quite a, it's always been the least efficient enterprise in terms of uh, opportunity cost. And it's always been the least reward for the most work of all the, of all the endeavors. What were some of the lessons that you learned from, from running a label early on? Um, I mean, one specific lesson I remember learning from Turbo was about expansion, you know, about, about listening to other people's ideas of how you should expand as opposed to kind of expanding at your own rate and uh i mean that's a rule i i would I, that kind of applies to everything you know i'm very wary of listening to other people you know it's easy to it's easy to think that other people know more than you whether that's bankers or lawyers or anybody quote-unquote professional you know it's easy especially when you're young and if you don't the training it's 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 an easy trap to fall into think that the so-called professional knows more than you do Obviously, sometimes they do, oftentimes they do, but, you know, I learned if you, if you just, if you don't listen to anyone and you really go at it your own way, at the very least, you'll learn the right way to do it, you know. So I think Turbo was the first lesson and I, I think learning just to expand at your own rate and not try to fit into someone else's model of what, at that time, of what an electronic label should be. I remember doing deals with like Ultra and, uh, what were at the time were big like distribution companies in America, you know, and just saying like, this is what you should do and this is how you should do it. I mean, they might've been right. I don't know, but for us, it wasn't, it didn't work. I mean, you also learn so much stuff with a record label about, you know, production and all the businesses I had done till that point. I mean, I laugh now when I meet people and I just think of all the things you do along the way, if you're building up these businesses, you know, everything from, making stickers to visiting printers to you know when i think of all the the nights at print shops and looking at films and arguing over paper stock and you know there's there's a whole industry of especially production i think a lot of that i guess is disappearing now i mean now it's incredible now you could easily run a record label and never never see any of that you know it'd all be digital which is cool as well but all through the 90s especially and the beginning of the 2000s i mean the amount of hands-on production work was pretty massive so it was a, a steep learning curve in all those areas and you got to a stage where um your brother came on board to help out with the running of, of the label 
Yeah. Um, when was that? Yeah, well, originally when I started Turbo, I had a partner. His name was Mark, Mark Dillon. And uh, for me, I was always like the idea guy. I always needed a part. I always wanted a partner to look after the day-to-day. I was a bit, you know, I was the ideas and the energy, and I needed someone to run the ship. That lasted a while, and then he, he wanted to do something else. And I actually shut the label down, well, kind of shut the label down for a small period. And then I started up again, and my brother came on board. Um, I think he's been on board about four years. It might be five. It might be six. I don't know. <laughs> it's been a while. I mean, it, it time goes quickly. Yeah. Well, my brother obviously is my brother, so we, we were very close. We've always been close. Um, he's seven years younger than me, and he, he grew up really. I mean, he started really young because I was doing parties, you know, throwing massive events when I was like 18. And, I mean, he was coming to parties when he was 12. You know, he was he was literally... I mean, he was he was going for it at age thirteen. You know, he was real. Right, he baby. really he really grew up with it. You know, and I had all the records, and my room was next to his, and so he got a very early education. And and uh, yeah, my brother was he was kind of like I always really knew what I wanted to do. I was like extremely driven from a very young age. You know, everything everything that's happened since was kind of mapped out. And uh, my brother wasn't really the same. He was doing a bit of lots of different things. And and then, but the time was right. And he came on board. And the great thing about my brother is obviously, well, great, depending on your taste. But for me, the great thing about my brother is he is, well, he has fantastic taste in music. And, and in a lot of ways, we have very similar tastes, obviously, as brothers on a deep kind of level. You know, I really, but as an A&R man, I trust him implicitly. You know, I trust him as as only brothers can. You know, if he if he says something's bad, it's bad. I don't have to listen to it. If he says something's great, it's great. I consider myself a great A&R man. Obviously, I've built my career on on being able to find things and know if something's good. But my brother sometimes, I think, is even a bit, uh, I don't want to say better, but he, <laughs> but he is, my brother has a good sense, of, sometimes a slightly wider, no, that's not true. We're both, we're both the same. <laughs> but, uh, but he has really good taste and he, and a lot of time he finds records before, before I do. And sometimes he finds records and I, I don't like them at first, and then I realize I was wrong. Yeah. I can think of quite a few like that. Okay, and in terms of the, the day-to-day workings of the label, what's the split like between, between you guys now? It changes over the years. Like when I'm, when I'm in a kind of album cycle of my own, like when I'm either in studio working on my own album or touring heavily, I retreat more and more from day-to-day the label. We have like a big, well, an office complex, whatever, like a multi-office. We have a little studio. We have a big turbo office, and then I have my big, like, production office, which means me. You know, it's me in a big office with a big table. <laughs> and uh, so I'm next to the guys, and they're, like, four people at Turbo. Uh, the day-to-day, really, I mean, now I'm more or less removed from the day-to-day operations. Like, I, me and my brother have A&R meetings, but I'm still in contact with everyone every day, you know, still over. I'm involved in the minutia, you know. I was always very involved in all the graphic decisions. Mm-hmm. That was always my main thing. Was was uh, my involvement was always really anything that the public would see or hear, especially graphics and visuals. That was always really my. I still, I've st- I've never let that go. I still kind of micromanage that. But now we we've been finding more and more better people, and uh, we got like partners in Germany. We got uh, staff working for us in Germany. We got guy in England we have like you know more and more people are joining up and so it's easier for me to I'm not really officially involved in the day-to-day and was there anyone that that you know someone that you wish you could have signed to the label that you've you've missed out on for one reason or another the one that got away well 
I would have liked to have signed. I would have liked Gasafelstein to be like a big proper signing with albums and everything because I, I just I love him. We we were there at the right time early. We got fantastic material and singles, and I really really, I just really believe in him as as an artist. And in a lot of ways, he kind of, he kind of represents for me that the the line Turbo Walks, you know, which is, it's, it's techno at its foundation, but it's not it's not boring. It's not like it's more ambitious, I like to call it, you know, and it has moments of pop and moments with more attitude and he's got a great look about him. And I just, for me, it kind of ticks all the boxes. So, but I've, no, I've never, I've never had a big deal about exclusivity. You know, I've never been hung up. I look at it from an artist standpoint and I've never been, no, I've never really been stressed over missing out on someone or, and a lot of the times we, we have access to so much stuff and we, we pass up things all the time. And a lot of the time we pass up things that are huge successes. I mean, we've, we've passed up all kinds of records. My brother bugs me about it all the time. There's loads of records I've said no to, like I just didn't like them and they end up being big successes. It doesn't bother me. So what, what makes something right for, for Turbo? Well, we have to love it and we just have to like it. Well, me or my brother have to really love it, preferably both of us, usually both of us. I was reading a lot of books about Motown a few years ago about Barry Gordy and stuff. And I was, you know, he had a policy. He would get, they had like a once a week A&R meeting where they'd get everybody together in a room and they just had a simple system. It was like thumbs up or thumbs down. And he said something that was really important is what I, I tell my brother now. Because we live in an, an age where like people talk so much and there's so much chatter about every track. And so I've tried to implement this. It's very difficult to do where it's just thumbs up, thumbs down. And if it gets thumbs down, that's it. And, and I have a policy too. It's like, if you want to put a record out, you have to be ready to fight for it. You know, like if you're ready to fight for a record, like why you really think this is a great record, I'll go along with it. But if someone's not ready to, essentially we just have to like the records, you know. The gay our policy, it does change because like when you're starting out as a label, you're a little bit more desperate. You know, you need material. You don't have the same leverage with artists. So you're a little bit more, you know, you'll even put out what I call setup records. You know, you'll, you'll, you will do a record. Maybe you know it's not the greatest record, but it's a setup record for the next record or, you know, or just to set up a network or to make someone feel comfortable or, you know, you do those things as well. But in general, we have to like the record and you live and die by your tastes. That's, that's how I look at it. You know, there's some years where what you love, everyone else is going to love. And, you, and there's a bit of like a miniature zeitgeist there and, and you go with it. There are other years where what you love, people are just not interested in and, and there's no choice. You know, that's just, that's just how it goes. I'm completely uninterested in, in, in chasing my own tail. You know, I'm completely disinterested in trying to guess what someone else is going to like. It's, it's hard enough. You know, that's just not how I want to live my life. Talking about your own productions, uh, your most recent single, Plush, mm. um, got some, some really good reactions in some, maybe some unlikely spots. That, would you say that track is, is setting a marker in terms of maybe what your next album will sound like? Yeah, maybe. I'm not 100% sure yet. I mean, the thing that was important for me, I think, for me at least, I know it's quite difficult for me to keep making records that I think are kind of interesting, that aren't, that aren't just derivative, that aren't just repetition. And so every time you make one of those, for me, I'm really proud. Like for example, every, you know, if you can, if you can make one of those every year or every two years for myself, it's, it's just important to prove to yourself that, Hey, you can still make something that sounds that, that I like. And it sounds a bit different. I think plush is, and I don't say this about all my records at all. I think they're records I've done that are, you know, whatever, but, Plush, I think it's like an interesting record. It's a cool record. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a marker, but 
it's still a little bit weirder than I would like my my album to be. Like Plush is still quite esoteric. I think it's a bit, it's still a bit of a strange record. It requires a bit of context. I think, for my own music, I think, ideally, I think the Holy Grail is stuff that that doesn't require any explanation. You know, I think the coolest record. I mean, that's what's great about like Daft Punk or Kraftwerk or you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter who you. You don't need to know anything about anything to appreciate it. And you also put a track out through Crosstown Rebels last year. How, how did that come to be? Uh, well, I'm old friends with Damien Lazarus. He actually signed Sunglasses at Night to what was his label at the time. He was A&R for uh, City Rockers, which was a UK-based label. They signed it from Gigolo. So that's how I met him uh, and Phil Howells back in the day. Yeah, they brought me to London for the first time, which is a long time ago. And they were kind of my first you know, industry or just friends in England. So that's how I met him. And we kept in touch over the years. You know, I followed him closely as he started his label. And yeah, we've always been in contact. We, we weren't really traveling in the same musical circles. And then it actually came about because we were at Sonar together. I think we were at a Vision Quest party or something. Uh, and we were talking, I was talking to him about how I was noticing like there was so much more of this like male vocal house. You know, there was all this like hot natured stuff. And I was just starting to hear again. It was going back to like kind of pop dance house you know there was a lot of it and i remember just thinking i told him i'm like well remember a lot of this is starting to sound a little bit like well pleasure from the bass you know like just not the sound of it but the idea of it and he was like yeah yeah my god of course and he, i don't remember i think he was like well why don't we re-release pleasure from the bass i was like sure let's do it we were at the beach he's a, he's actually a damien's a very good a and r guy he's really good he's very tenacious he's really like and you have to be and he's really and he follows he gets ideas and he puts things together really well and he follows up on them so he had the idea so he got Suban to do the remix and then he said why don't you do a, a, a track on the other side so I, I did that one and so that was called the picture and for, for both the picture and plush I've read references either from from yourself or in press releases to Prince mm. um, how much of an influence has, has he been for you I guess musically but also in terms of you know injecting some flair into what you do um I think if you've seen Prince, you're influenced by Prince. You know, I mean, I don't, if you make music, that is. I mean, if you, I think it's hard not to. His influence on me is, yeah, pretty. It's kind of general. You know, it's a bit like Bowie. It's like a general thing. It's, it's, it's just. I don't know. It's like, wow, look how cool you can be. You know, it's something to live up to. It's like a role model. <laughs> well, Prince, but Prince actually, it's not true. It's not only general. It's a bit more specific because, like, I've never tried to make music like Bowie. I mean, but Prince actually. You know, you listen back to Prince records now, and they're actually, a lot of the time, they're quite experimental. You know, like, there's loads of, of electronics and loads of, I mean, total drum machines. And he would make a lot of those tracks on his own. You know, in a lot of ways, he was like an electronic producer. You know, he'd lay down all the drum tracks. He'd, he'd punch in all kinds of crazy synths. He did crazy things with his voice, with pitch shifting and yeah. reverses. And I mean, and it's incredible. You go... You go back now and you listen to some of the stuff and it's just, it's mind-blowing. This is what I really take from, well, among the things I take from Prince is the amount of ideas, like just the sheer level of creativity is incredible. And that's, that's I've always just leaned towards that. I like that idea of throwing all these crazy ideas into something. I'm not really a craftsman. It's not like, I'm not really like, okay, I'm going to tinker with this particular hi-hat for a week you know it's more like i really like that idea i mean you have to do both but i like the idea and prince is just a fantastic example of it of just like there's just so much crazy stuff in there 
and obviously and his stuff is like it's everything it's like sexy it's smart it's funny and you always can dance and it's successful and i like all those things absolutely you know in terms of your own public persona um you're obviously not the kind of person who's into anonymous hand stamped white labels and that kind of stuff in terms of the way you you put yourself out there what kind of led to you you building the the public the image of of who you are is it is it just come completely naturally um yeah well well it's a strain i mean it's unnatural in the sense that you you have that drive when you're you know that you want to project yourself like that yeah it's natural to me i don't know if it's a natural thing but yeah it did come naturally it just seemed like it's calm to me it was common sense i mean it was like you know girls who want to be a princess or something it was just like well you know if you're going to take my picture i'd like to look good i'd like to look as good as possible if i'm going to be on an album cover i'd like to look cool i'd like to look nice <laughs> and i think i mean i think there's an honesty in it to be to be like i just think like i grew up looking at like david bowie or prince or depeche mode or duran duran or soft cell or or the smiths i mean and image and how they look it was a massive part of it and it is a massive part of it of of the whole thing and when i started also it's also an opportunity it's like you can have fun with it you know it's an opportunity to to get dressed up it's an opportunity to create something and uh and it was fun and it's always been fun and i mean i like i actually i like white label culture i mean and i i had years of facelessness uh, as a dj and deep in the techno scene and deep in that world and i go back to that sometimes i kind of like both but ultimately for me personally and it's a bit ironic i think there's actually like i find there more honesty in the the narcissism of really trying to project yourself as big as you can i think it it's more it's like more true to who i am you know that that and this is interesting for like ra because i and for techno culture in general because i struggle with it, you know but for me personally that doesn't suit me as well even though i like that whole side of things like the more techno side of things whatever and i and i'm comfortable with it i don't know i think it's more me to really kind of yeah like project that identity a little bit more i wanted to speak to you about your your current djing situation you you recently played at south by southwest for the mm-hmm. first time uh, how did that go i was actually pretty good i was impressed not impressed with my own performance but i mean i was but i was i was happy with that no i was i, I liked it I mean I have a strange relationship with America over the years like I never you know I always I always wanted to go to Germany that was like my first big love as a techno person and then I had so much success over the years in Europe and I never really went to America and I always saw America as like I don't know just different like kind of I don't want to say behind it just never quite gelled for me and so and that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy you know so for me it's always a little bit weird for example you know you go south by southwest and you're always you know you're trying to start something and it's not it's not like walking into berlin or barcelona or whatever it's different america i think is like that in general but it is exciting there now i mean there's like a great energy there's a lot it's very young you know it feels like in the best way you know it feels like they're always this so enthusiastic there's so much optimism you know but south by southwest specifically for me i did a party with richie he did it was at one of his control parties it was like me dice him azari it was fun i had a good time Um you kind of touched on it there but you know you're a self-confessed uh europhile. Mm. Um what is it about the continent that attracts you? Well, I think it started 
there's three key moments. One is just like early, early, early. It's James Bond, which makes me congratulations. I'm just like everyone else. But that's like when I was super young, you know, it's all I cared about was James Bond. I would look, we'd get the TV guide once a week and you'd, it would show all the movies that were for the next year. I don't even know if I could read. And I would just, for the next week, sorry, all the, and I would, first thing I would do, just scan to find out if there was a James Bond movie on that week. And then I would, just like everybody else, we're talking like super basic. But I always liked that. There was always something slick about Europe. I always wanted to be like, well, that leads into the next, it was Duran Duran. You know, I really bought into that. I wanted to be like clean and fancy and rich and uh, yeah, just like smooth. And there was an undercover. I never liked the brashness and the kind of the show-offy side of what was like America, the more maybe North American way. But it, it depends too, you know, it could, yeah, I really, I grew up in India, you know, I spent a lot of time in Goa and I think for me and my parents were like, I don't know, a little bit hippie-ish and I, I don't know. And I think being super young in the eighties, like that shiny material view of things, which I associated with being European, I don't know exactly why that really, I just always thought it was cool. And then the third the, the finishing touch was I always had a real obsession with Germany and it lives on today. It, I mean, in the form of techno, that it was kind of like really for me, the spiritual home of techno, even though I later found out about Detroit. <laughs> but uh, but for me, Germany was, yeah, I just like all, I, I, I really, 49% of me is really falls into that German mindset, all the typical cliche things about perfectionism and the way they work and the way the, the door hinges move smoothly and the way the cars are built. And I'm not like proud of it. It's not the sexiest thing in the world, but uh, it's an honest part of who I am and I enjoy it. And Well, you recently, pl well, a few months ago, played at Panorama Bar. Um, tell me about that experience. And uh, that, that got hooked up after Arm heard, heard Plush, is that right? Yeah, I think Dixon, I don't know. I'd been bumping into Dixon over the years. Like he's big into football and I'm big into football. And uh, we trade records and... I think I went to their party at Sonar this year and it was this great time. I love Intervisions. Oh no, I, yeah, and I was in touch with them but all the Philomena records. And stuff. I, I'm, I love Intervisions. They have like a great vibe, I guess, like everybody and such great parties. We started talking and then, I don't know the exact sequence. They got plush, they wanted to remix it and then they invited me to DJ that party which was their Intervisions party at uh, Panorama and I played like Sunday. I think it was like a 36 hour thing. I played Sunday from like seven till 10 at night and uh, I was very nervous because it meant something to me, you know, like it was, it's not like it really, I was nervous, you know, and that's panorama. There's no bullshit. Like you're, you're there, you know, and I was playing between Dixon and Henrik Schwartz and everyone's so close and it's, it's the club I really care about. And the sound is amazing. And, and I was nervous for like three days. I did like three shows before and I just, I don't remember those other shows and, but I loved it. I mean, it went really well. And for me, it was like really special night. Those are the nights where like, for me, you get, I get back to the hotel and it's just like, it's all answers, no questions, you know? And there are other nights where it's all questions. It's like, what is, what am I doing? Why do I play there? What's wrong with the sound? What should I be an architect? Like all these like garbage questions. And that was just one of those ones where it was like, no, you just feel, I feel like how I felt going to my first parties in Montreal, like, you know, that just the real like house music dream, you know? Were there any special moments in that in that three-hour set or was it just the whole thing just felt right? The whole thing felt perfect, A to Z. I mean, there, yeah, there's special moments. Like, you know, fin I mean, I have a lot of, for years I didn't get to play like 
Deep House records so much, but I have a lot from over the years. So getting to play like, you know, I think I finished with this old record, Outer Limits, Mission Control, which was like, which was my first kind of ecstasy record at this club called Crisco in Montreal. Like in the, my role model DJs, these two like big legendary gay Montreal DJs that used to finish with that record. And it's like, you know, it's one of those ones you play it and you get all ting, I get all like, oh, you know, and, and yeah, I finished with that. And Henrik Schwartz actually was dancing and he was like, oh my God, this is one of my, you know, so those little, I, the, that whole experience is beautiful because, well, beautiful, yeah, beautiful for me because what's really nice is it comes back a bit to, you know, the difference between like the kind of techno world or that greater ambitious pop world, you know, the point is that they're not, they're not in competition and at their best, they're both beautiful. They're both amazing things. And the thing is like, and Intervisions is a great example of that like those guys, what they do, the quality of the music they do, how they do it in the right venues with amazing, with a crowd that says it's an incredible thing. And it's not, and it's not like it's better, you know, to be Swedish house mafia playing for a million people, or it's not like it's better to be, uh, the XX playing, you know, those are just different when it's done. So as a DJ, I mean, those are the moments you aim for, whether that's a part of like that at Panorama or whether it's a part of like that at Berghain or, what, you know, like when it's done right, it's, it's, it's just as high up the totem pole as anything else for me. Sort of on that note, you know, much has been made about your position kind of orbiting between different musical worlds, I guess. Mm, it's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and in actually an interview with RA a couple of years back, you admitted to creating a lot of confusion, as you put it, in mm. your career. Why do you think that's the case? Can you can you expand upon that for me? I don't I don't know. I mean I I definitely don't I never created it deliberately. It's it's more like a cross to bear. For as long as I can remember, I always kinda envied, you know, I would go hear other DJs and I'd hear I remember guys like Marco Corolla, you know, I'd hear them and it was just so focused. It was like such a focused sound. I guess like Ben Clock and Detman are like that or but it's across the board, you know, in any genre. I always kinda envied them whatever I don't I have no idea what they actually go through but from looking in from the outside you know just it was like a focus and a, and a, a stylistic determination that seemed really seemed relaxing <laughs> but it also seemed like for the actual performance it, it just works you know it just it just makes sense and I was never really like that even when I try to be like that you know because I I can get really techno or I can get even when I try I don't I always want to veer off a bit to the left or right. You know, I always either want to go with a few vocals or I don't know. I, I think it's just my tastes and it's just uh, I've kind of stopped questioning it. It's just it's just how I am. I think with me, I think the difference is like whether it's through luck or experience or whatever. I just I'm kind of very confident. So whereas other people might feel restricted and feel, OK, I've had success in this area. I should stick with it. I just don't care. I just go all over the place. That's and you see that in the label. You see that in it was crazy. Like in recently, just in the course of one week, I played like I did back to back with Seth, like at a Vision Quest party. I played this. No, this was in like twenty four hours. I did like the Pete, Pete Tong pool party in Miami. Vision Quest back to back with Seth. Ultra. Like I was just all over the place in all these different different environments. And I don't know. I think I enjoy it to an extent. I do think at some point, like when it comes to, for example, an album, I've felt. My albums could have been a bit more focused, I think. I think I think it's a better product for everybody, including yourself, if if it's more like, okay, this album is saying a bit more this sound, and then I'll do something else for the next one. Good example is mix CDs. I always remember like the, be the best mix CDs in the world are always the ones where it's like, 
you're not trying to do everything. It's just, it's an hour of something explored properly, you know? And that, so there's something to be said for that. I, I'll keep working on it. <laughs> I guess, yeah, if there's that, that kind of sense of narrative that gives people something to kind of latch onto and, and write about. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, you know, like every artist, I go easy on other people. It's part of why, you know, people who like hate on other people's careers or on other people's decisions is just, it, they have no clue what goes into it, you know, which is that everybody, you know, you're kind of making it up as you go along. At least I am. It's like, you're, you're, you're trying your best, you know, you're trying your best <laughs> and you're, it's not my fault if somebody, if I hear a, a deep house record and I love it, I try to integrate it somehow. I want to. And, and if it doesn't fit, I try to make a way for it to fit. You also said once that uh, you never pay attention to reviews uh, unless they're positive, in, in which case you frame them, which yeah. uh, was quite a funny comment to make. And how much attention do you, do you really pay to the critical response to, you, to your music and the public response? Um, well, I think everyone, I mean, it's pretty common to say you don't care. You know, everyone does care a little bit. I used to care. I mean, obviously, again, it's with a bit more experience. I mean, ultimately, it's it's good when you don't care. I mean, it's good when you, but it's not good when you completely don't care, you know. It is still showbiz. It's still entertainment. You know, you want, I think it feels, it feels nice to get recognition for what you, for what you do. I think for me, the key is I like, I like when things are proportionate. So I like, you know, I like sometimes if you make something that you think is great, it's great. It feels nice if other people also think it's great. And then you don't feel like you're crazy. If you make something that's mediocre and that's the response you get, that's fair enough. You know, I think so you want in an ideal world, your reviews kind of mirror reality. So, for example, like my mix CD I did last year, it wasn't nearly as good as my DJ kick CD. And that was reflected, you know, like I like the, I saw a few reviews and that that was fair you know it's it's that's fine no but in general i don't care so much anymore because i'm i'm a man you know for lack of a better word like i'm no, i'm a real man like and what i mean by that is is at the end of the no but it, it sounds crazy but at the end of the day most of these things just don't mean much they just don't mean anything and i've that's the i've been around long enough to know that a lot of the people that are at home writing and being critical of things whether that's good or bad I just don't care. I don't care what they're doing. You know, like I'm, I'm again, I'm doing my best. It's like my life. I guess in the end, it's, there's a certain degree of egomania involved. It's like, I just, this is my life. It's infinitely more important to me than what anyone else says about it. By and large, it's best not to read anything though. And it's, it's by and large, it's best to keep external influence to an essential minimum and the essential minimum just being only enough to keep you from being one of those guys on the corner who sings to himself and, counts paper clips and stuff <laughs> going back to your sort of touring schedule um as a dj um I, I guess in in recent years you've always been you know touring the globe and you haven't really had a, any kind of residency to, to speak of is that something that you ever kind of crave i do actually right now i do it's a good question because i think residencies really they make you better i mean i think the resident for a dj at least i think a residency really you improve I mean, you just, you just straight up improve and you really, you can really hone a sound. I mean, the great, that's how good new sounds emerge. They don't happen overnight. They happen through, they're perfected and, and a residency is the way to do that. For me right now, I would, right now specifically, I would love a residency because I think like my DJing the past few years was a little scattered. Right now it's, it's getting really good. 
again for me by my own standards and I feel close to a new sound it's a cycle it happens every two or three years you know old sounds die your own tastes change you get bored and then you it starts with one or two records and you scrounge till you have enough to make that little evolutionary leap like a frog you know that and every time you make a leap you survive for a few more years you know and uh but part of making that leap is honing the sound and a residency is really something very helpful for that um i would love one i would actually like one at home right now uh, unfortunately the clubs in montreal are not it's, it's a bit of a dry period i was a resident for years i mean in montreal for about eight uh, probably about eight years i played like three different places every week and uh, i have total respect for resident djs usually they're better i mean a lot of the time they're they're really good and they and you can you have more freedom too in a way do you keep count of how many gigs you play in a year I don't as it happens, but I just, for the first time ever, I just did count my past four years. You know, I was, I don't remember, I was talking to my managers. I was making some like typically grand declaration of like, you know, this is the way it is. I did. And then of course I was like, well, I don't even have facts to back that up. So I was like, maybe I should do a bit of research. And yeah, I can't, I, I actually don't play so much. I think past four years, it was something like, the year Chow came out, I did like 76, 75 shows, or something, which was quite a lot. And then it was like 60, 60, and 75 or something. I, I keep it pretty. It feels like I travel a lot, but compared to some people, I mean, I say no to almost everything, really. But that's more just because I like being at home and I like, I don't live in Europe. It's funny, you know, so I always think of like, I'll bring up Swedish House Mafia again. I don't know why, but, you know, people like to knock them and stuff. And, I kind of like to defend them. But I remember I bumped into Steve Angelo when I first met him years ago. We were both playing in, uh, we were both DJing in Brazil somewhere. And it's pre-Swedish House Mafia. And uh, we were talking and I remember at the time I was kind of complaining. Like me and a lot of my friends were kind of like, oh God, you know, we're DJing so much. I want to be in studio more, blah, blah. And I remember asking, he's like, well, how many shows you do this year? I don't know, I was like 75. I'm like you. And he was like 250. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, oh my God, like, and, and to this day, when I see them, you know, or I see any of these, like, you know, these mega DJs and, and people like to write it off like it's so easy, like it just happens or it's, but it's like these people work every day. I mean, these people are just, and they've been doing that for years and years. You, you do 250 shows a year. My God. You know. Next year, I'll probably, with an album, I'll bump it up to 100. Staying away from musical matters briefly, um, you're also a pretty ardent fan of, of Barcelona, is that right? Yes. H how did you get into supporting them? Again, it's like the Euro, the yep. Euro obsession, you know. Well, I started to, I guess around 2001, I started to travel a lot in Europe. And obviously, I was incredibly excited. Incre I mean, every day was the best day of my life. I was like, I was, I was welcomed into the club, you know, as I was signed to Gigolo. And I was, you couldn't be further away from Jaded. I was just in love with, everything you know and every day was an opportunity and everybody i was meeting i was i was meeting my heroes and i was making connections and i guess around the same time part of it was like you know the culture and whatever all, all the things that everyone does when they first start traveling or, or whether that's djing or not you know so i was like wow there's this thing called tapas and, you know like you know you're telling your friends back home and you know and, and i think and football kind of fell a bit into that category i mean i was always interested in it my father used to play a little bit i used to play a little bit but then i got i started to get really into it and barcelona was kind of embracing me as a city i was playing there a lot i was having it was probably one of my biggest it's always been probably my biggest 
supporter, whatever, like a home away from home. And so, yeah, the, it seemed normal. And this is before they became like the awesome dominator. I mean, they were always awesome, but yeah. So I just started to get into it and started to follow it. And then everywhere you go in Europe, it's like this, this language, you know, you can talk to any taxi driver. You can, I have a very strong tendency towards numbers and statistics. So whether it's a stock market or, or the hockey statistics or soccer statistics, or it's all welcome. And, uh, and, and I play a lot. I play like two or three times a week. It's been about 15 years. Actually, you mentioned that you like to remix the, uh, the Champions League theme, <laughs> perhaps. That's um, me tweeting at home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obviously, you know, your, your early career was marked out by qu quite a few standout um, covers. Uh, do yeah. you reckon this could be the, the next one? <laughs> It'd be funny. No, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that one alone or for Tiesto or something. I'll, I'll leave it alone. I actually, every time when I'm at home and I'm tweeting that, I think, oh God, well, just go to the studio, just do it and post it on SoundCloud just for fun, you know? But uh, no, I do. Uh, you let that one slide for now. I'll let it go for now. And you often talk of, about tunes being stuck in your head. Um, out of interest, what's, what's in there right now? I tweeted this morning, I woke up, it was uh, Kiss, Kiss from a Rose, whatever that song is. I've been kissed by a rose on by Seal, which last time I was at a strip club, which was a long time ago, that was playing. <laughs> it was a, I think it's a big Quebec strip club anthem. I have no, I actually, it's funny. I tweeted that this morning because I've, I just don't know how that works. And then people were like, "Did you watch Batman last night?" No, did you? I don't. Lately, it's been a bit of a condition. Uh, that Jamie Liddell song, that "What a Shame." Oh, I don't even want to think about it. It was like maybe two weeks it became a bit of a problem lately it's been there's like maybe something wrong with my my head like the, there's like an adhesive like things just go in there on a loop and but yeah can you I, ever work any of these these songs into your sets well the jamie liddell i finish every night with it <laughs> so i guess maybe that's why it's staying in my head um you know what's funny though is actually here's a little i don't know not a trade secret but my a lot of my ideas i get from listening to the radio especially like in taxis or in my own car i something about the randomness of it which might speak to why i'm a bit all over the place in my tastes I, I like that idea of the random becoming like purposeful you know i like the idea because it happens to me a lot where i'll hear something randomly i'll hear like uh, a bruce springsteen song I'll be like oh my god i forgot i love that song and just from that you make some kind of a link to something else you know you it might not be covering the song. It's not always that obvious, but, but you know, then you'll think, oh, whoa, I forgot that, you know, that's a great title or that's a great idea or whoa, what he did in that video. And then that, I think, how you digest pop culture, for me, that whole process, like the kind of accidental is very central to everything. And you, the best example of that for me is humor. I mean, that's like, for me, what, what jokes are about, you know? It's not just like, I don't just sit in a box alone thinking of funny things to say, but then you know, you see something, you know, somebody walks down the street and like, whatever, they don't know, they have, you know, a piece of Kleenex stuck to their face or something and you see it and then you think, oh, you know, and then you connect that to something else. I, actually, I think for me, the skill, the further you go, the higher, the, the higher you climb is, is based purely on the speed of those connections. So the better the comedian is, it's just how fast he makes those connections and obviously how accurate they are. The faster you can make the connections between the seemingly unconnected, the better you do in whatever you do. DJing's a bit like that too. So it's like the quicker you make you make a good connection, oh, this record will go great with this record. And 
you know, the guys who do it consistently, very quickly, very efficiently are great DJs. I don't need a calculator 